0: Greatest single cause of atheism in the world today is Christians who acknowledge Jesus with their lips and walk out the door and deny them by their lifestyle. That is what an unbelieving world simply finds unbelievable. This is uh, your host and Bible teacher, Keith McKenzie. This is part five of five on uh, the fundamentals of the faith. This section here that uh, Pastor Conway is going to do for us today is on the virgin birth of Christ. Sadly, this is a doctrine that is widely denied now in what used to be many uh, solid Bible preaching uh, denominations, uh, emergent churches, and a lot of uh good denominations of yesteryear now uh, largely deny this doctrine. It is crucial and we're going to let Pastor Conway go ahead and teach us this. I hope you're being blessed and encouraged by this. Uh, The next section in our theology series uh, Pastor Conway will be doing Bibliology. This is going to be a great series.
1: Returning with me in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 19 Revelation chapter 19, we heard that read this morning, looking at the physical and bodily return of Jesus Christ. Physical and bodily return of Christ. And we saw it read this morning, and we see what a dramatic and what a tremendous and awesome and powerful description that we see here of Christ. And I don't know about you, but I wouldn't want to be on the wrong side of this return. And I'm glad that we're not going to be on this side of the return. But there are many who will say that as believers that we will be here on earth to witness that. And I don't believe that. I believe that we'll be taken in the rapture before this. And as we will talk about, we'll be coming back with Christ on, on this return. So I believe we'll be gone. And there are others who believe that this is the rapture. And it's then at this time that when Christ will come back for believers. And or or right before this, and then he'll come down and then come back right at this time. But there's nothing in this passage that even resembles a description of the rapture. There are uh, some scriptures in the New Testament that refers to the catching away of the church, and that's where that word rapture comes from. For example, in John 14 and 1 Thessalonians 4 verse 13 talks about that. And both of those talk about the Lord coming for the church. For example, in John 14, verse 3, the comfort chapter, as we will sometimes call it, Jesus says, And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And so what he says here, it's a promise and not a warning. And so we can't compare this to to the passage that we're going to be looking at this morning, which is more of a warning, if you will. You know, the passages that talk about the rapture and Christ coming to take us back, those are things that we should anticipate, not things that we should we should dread or fear. He says, I'm going to prepare a place for you, and I'm going to come and I'm going to take you to that place. And so we ask the question, where is Christ now? And the obvious answer is that Christ is in, in heaven right now. And he's preparing a place for us in the Father's house. He says, In my Father's house are many dwelling places. There's going to be a house with many rooms And he says he's going to come And he's going to take us to that place But he's preparing a place Where he's going to take us there But when he comes to judge He's going to come to earth And he's going to set up his kingdom here And so the rapture is a different event It's a catching up of the church And into the heavenly homes That Christ has prepared for us. So want us to see the difference Between these two events And so at the rapture Christ doesn't literally come down to earth Where do we meet him? in the air, right? And so we see here in this passage, he's going to come down to earth. And, and, in, and in the rapture, he doesn't um, come to, to um, down here as we see in this passage. And here he brings us with him. He brings the saints with him. So these are, these are two different events here. And that's why we, we can't see those two as the same events. But, but that's just a little aside and to give us some perspective here. So on one hand, the return of Jesus Christ to the earth is the climax here of, of all that's gone before in, in the book of Revelation. And on the other hand, it's the, the first of, of seven final things that John saw. You know, these things are he saw Christ return, he sees Satan's capture, he sees Satan's binding, the millennium, Satan's final end, the last judgment, and then he sees a new heaven and a new earth as well as the new Jerusalem. And as we look at the sequence of these things, we can see the purpose of what Christ's return would be. It's so that things would become better. Now, if we think about how things are on this earth, ever since the fall, things have literally been going downhill since then. And things have been going bad in this world ever since then. And so his return is going to bring a time of peace. You know, Jesus is going to come and he's going to rule this world someday. And he's going to come back, and he's going to come back as king, and he's going to establish his kingdom. And the reason why we talk about the physical and the bodily return of Christ is you know, there are people who don't believe that Christ exists in his bodily form in heaven right now. They'll believe with his resurrection that he rose. He was in a spiritual sense, and then he's not there. But Christ is actually in heaven in bodily form. He's going to return with that same body again physical it's not going to be some metaphorical thing it's going to be actual thing that's going to happen but when we think about this world even getting better before it even gets better it's going to get worse you think things are bad now it's going to get worse than it is today and sometimes we ask if it could even get any worse than it is now and the answer is it can and it will and then jesus will come second thessalonians 1 6 to 8 says for after all It is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to give relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels and flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. And so this is the day we're looking at here in Revelation when he comes with his mighty angels and with Flaming fire, dealing that retribution to those who don't know God and to those who do not obey the gospel, as the verse says. And these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction, which we know as hell. But on the other hand, he'll be glorified in the saints that day. He's going to be marveled at among those who believe in him. And this is going to happen very fast. The gates of heaven are going to burst open, and the Lord is going to appear, as it says here, with his saintly hosts. Remember how Christ came first, first time? He came, and he was despised and rejected. He was mocked, and he was ridiculed. But when he comes the second time, it's going to be the opposite. Now, the imagery of this section pictures Christ as a warrior king. It's similar to Isaiah chapter 11. In fact, turn there with me for a moment. Isaiah chapter 11. We'll see here some uh, similarity. Isaiah chapter 11, um, starting in verse 1. Then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding the spirit of counsel and strength, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord and he will not judge by what his eyes see nor make a decision by what his ears hear. But with righteousness, he will judge the poor and decide with fairness for the afflicted of the earth. And he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips, he will slay the wicked. Also righteousness will be the belt about his loins. And faithfulness, the belt about his waist. And so we see there, that's a very similar um, description to what we see in Revelation. He's called a faithful and true in Revelation. In Isaiah, he's called a faithful one, or having faithfulness. His righteousness in Revelation 19 is celebrated, and also here in Isaiah 11. He smites the earth with his mouth here in Isaiah 11. And as well in Revelation 19, he establishes his rule in Isaiah 11. And he does the same thing in Revelation 19. Now, while we're in Isaiah, flip over to chapter 63 for a moment. Isaiah 63. Look at verse 1. Who is this who comes from Edom? Edom means red, with garments of glowing colors from Basra. This one who is majestic in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength. It is I who speak in righteousness, mighty to save. Why is your apparel red, and your garments like the one who treads in the winepress? I have trodden the wine trough alone, and from the peoples there was no man with me. I also trod them in my anger, and trampled them in my wrath. And their lifeblood is sprinkled on my garments, and I stained all my raiment. For the day of vengeance was in my heart, and my year of redemption has come. I looked, and there was no one to help. And I was astonished, and there was no one to uphold. So my own arm brought salvation to me, and my wrath upheld me. I trod down the peoples in my anger and made them drunk in my wrath. And I poured out their lifeblood on the earth. And so that imagery here in Isaiah 63 also appears in Revelation chapter 19. Now let's go back there for a second. Revelation 19. In verse 13, where it says, He's clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And so, Christ is not this simpleton or this pacifistic leader that sometimes we might think of him as. You know, he's a warrior, and it's a terrifying picture to have of Christ sometimes. We think of him as we see him in the Gospels and as he came, but we see that we see a different image of Christ here. Now, despite all the biblical evidence, there are some that will say that Jesus will not return, or better yet, he won't return bodily, as we've said. But as we've seen from Scripture, we can be sure that Jesus is going to come again. The promise of God demands it. God promises it. And we know that since God cannot lie, then we know that he's going to come. God promised that the Messiah would come, and that he would establish his kingdom, and that his throne would be in Jerusalem, and from that throne... He would rule the world. We know he didn't rule the world from Jerusalem the first time, so he must be talking about the next time. Plus, Jesus himself said he was going to return. In in John 14, he said he would go away and he would come again. And again in Matthew 24 and 25, and then in Luke 19, and six times in the book of Revelation, he says to John, Behold, I come quickly. And so he guarantees it. The Father guarantees it, and the Holy Spirit also guarantees it. Remember, the Holy Spirit's the one that uh, inspired these men to write this book, and so the Holy Spirit also guarantees it. And so we see in verse 11 of Revelation 19, John, John says, John writing, he says, I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. And so John saw this scene here in heaven, and he, we, he now he saw heaven standing open. You know, It's not just a door like he saw back in, in, in Revelation 4, but he sees all of heaven open right now. And the reason heaven is open at this time is not to let anybody in. It's not letting John in to come see what, what to write, but it's to let somebody out. This is letting um, Jesus out and the, and the saints. And so he says in verse 11, he says, he saw it open, and behold... A white horse. And so the first thing he sees there and the first thing he observes and he writes down for us is, is a white horse. He doesn't see the lamb in the midst of the throne. Remember those description, But instead a white horse. And what a white horse symbolizes is victory over one's enemies. And here John saw Christ rather than the Antichrist riding a white horse. And so he saw the white horse and he says, and he who sat on it is called faithful and true. And so, riding on this white horse is this great conqueror, the Messiah. You know, he's not riding the way he rode in his earthly life. You know, he's, he's riding as a conqueror now. Zechariah 9 9 says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal. Of a donkey, but he's no longer portrayed this way as we see in Zechariah. But he's portrayed as a conqueror now, and white is not just the the, the color of, of war charges. in In the ancient Roman world, it was a symbol of, of 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 purity as well. It was a symbol of spotlessness. Did you see the name that he was called? He said he was called faithful and true. This is true because he's faithful to his promises. And, and it, he's, it's true because he speaks only truth. And it's never been more clearer because he will be faithful and true to his promise to bring the righteous with him into his kingdom and to destroy the wicked. He's been saying that. So he's going to be faithful and true to his promises. And in righteousness he judges and wages war. In righteousness he judges and wages war. This is a different Jesus than we're used to seeing here. We used to see in him ministering to the needy, and, and, and this was good, and these are the things that we learned from him and the things that we should do. We used to see in him feeding the hungry. We used to see in him healing the sick and casting demons out of people. But and his physical and bodily return, that's not how it's going to be. He now comes on a war mission. He comes to search and destroy. But if we really think about it, this isn't a, re, a new character for God and and we believe and we talked about the deity of Christ and we believe that Jesus is God it should be no different look at the further description of him in verse 12 it says his eyes are a flame a fire and so we see this vivid description of him here in the beginning of verse 12 we see his eyes and then continuing in verse 12 it says and on his head are many diadems and and he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself and so we see not only his eyes here, but we see what's on his head, and we see what's on his thigh, and it makes a reference to his name here. But we see his eyes are a flame of fire. Jesus' eyes here suggest not, not literally the fire, but it suggests piercing judgment of sin. It means that he takes everything into account. He sees everything. He could judge motives. Nothing escapes his notice. Notice. He's going to see everything, and his eyes are going to be penetrating. He's going to pierce through everything. He's going to see all the motives. He's going to cut open people, just like when we talk about the Word of God. Cutting people to open is sharper than a two-edged sword. This is the image here. It is his vision penetrates everything. And then we see on his head are many diadems. Diadems are crowns, and it says here that he has many of them. Not literal crowns, but just like the issue of the flames, the crowns here symbolize his rule, his right to rule as as king of kings and lord of lords. And it speaks of his royal rank and his authority. And he has the idea that he's just collected all the crowns from all the world, even Satan's crown. He doesn't have the right to rule. Anybody else who, on the world who would consider themselves kings, he has the right to rule, the absolute right to rule. And his ultimate symbol of sovereignty. And then all these crowns on his heads. And then we also see that he has a name written on him, which no one knows except himself. And so John doesn't know this name. This is something that was incomprehensible to him, either him or anybody else in his day. But um, it, it may become known to us when Christ returns. We don't know. Matthew 11, 27 says, All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal to him. And so we see here he has this name that nobody knows except himself. Now in the ancient world, um, a name revealed the, the nature of somebody or an individual. He revealed who he is and what he is and so forth, and so forth. Names have meanings, just like our names have meanings, but it had a lot more significance back then and There were a lot of people who practiced magic back in the in the ancient world and and they believed that um, that to know a name gave you power over that person, gave you dominion over that person whose name that you knew and so john is 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 saying here that with this name that only Christ knows that nobody will have dominion over him. Nobody has power over him. He's supreme. He knows himself. He only knows the name himself. But generally, we don't like that. I think this is one of the biggest questions that come up a lot is, you know, what is that name that's on him? People want to know, and the Bible doesn't tell us. We want to know. We want to know what that name it is, but this is something that we don't know. And John could see a name here, but he either couldn't read it or couldn't comprehend it. This is something that God alone knows beyond human comprehension. But we shouldn't confuse this name because we're going to see different names throughout the rest of this passage. We shouldn't confuse this name with what we'll see on this thigh, written on his thigh in verse 16. You know, verse 12 just says that the name is written on him. It doesn't say where, but this is a name that nobody knows but himself. Verse 13, he is clothed with a robe dipped in blood and his name is called the word of God, And so this is a further description of him. It describes his clothes and also another name that's given for him. It says he is clothed with a robe dipped in blood. We saw that imagery back in Isaiah, didn't we? And And, and dipped there just means covered or stained, if you will. And so this isn't the blood that we should think about that he shed on the cross. This isn't what this blood is about. This is a picture of judgment. You know, the bloody robe there has to do with the blood of his enemies. And 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 this talks about, anticipates his victory. And we shouldn't think of this as maybe his first battle. You know, this is his battle robe, if you will. This isn't his first battle, and this is his last battle. And then he says in the end of verse 13 that he has a name. His name is called the Word of God. The Word of God is a familiar title for us. We see it in John 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him. And apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. So we see the Word of God is the second member of the Trinity. The Word of God is Christ, the Messiah. He's Christ, the incarnate. We talked about last week being virgin-born. Why does He call Him the Word of God? Because he's the expression of God, he's the revelation of God, He's the one whom we hear God speak and see how God acts through him. He's the full expression of the mind and the will of God and the purpose of God. He's the word of God. He communicates God. and so we discover isn't we, we discover that it's not just the three names here, they all represent him that we'll see here in this passage. And so he has the name which nobody knows, which shows that he is God and nobody has dominion over him. We can't know God without him revealing himself to us. And so even with this name, it's something that he's going to have to tell us. But as we just saw, the other name is called the Word of God, which means he's the incarnate God. He came as the Word and he revealed himself that way so that we can know God when he came as the Word. He, He showed God to us. And if you look at the end of verse 16, as we had read earlier, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And this expresses his deity's sovereignty here. And so we see these names. Look at verse 14. And the armies, which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. Now, who are these armies that are going to be with him on his return? We see a description of them in the verse, and so we see first that they are in heaven, the armies in heaven, we see that first, remember John sees what is about to happen, you know, these are people who are in heaven at this moment as John's seeing this, it's like somebody taking a picture or a snapshot as the, the, the heaven opens up, and he takes a picture and he describes what he sees as, as this coming is about to happen. And so it's, it's as if Christ paused the scene in heaven and said, John, look at this and describe this and write it. And so they're in heaven now. These armies, it they says they're in heaven, as it says. And these aren't people coming up from the rapture because they're already in heaven. It also says in the verse that they're clothed in fine linen, white and clean. And then it also says that they're following him on white horses. So who are these persons? You know, we know that angels are going to accompany Christ at his second coming. Matthew 16:27 says, For the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of his Father with his angels and will, will then repay every man according to his deeds. 2 Thessalonians 1, 7 says, Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire. So we know that's going to happen. They're going to come along with him. But is that who these people are? You know, it seems unlikely that these people on the horses are are the angels. We know they're going to be there too, but rather it seems like these are human beings. Revelation 17, 14 says, These will wage war against the Lamb, and the Lamb will overcome them, because He is the Lord of lords and King of kings, and those who are with Him are the called and chosen and faithful. And also we get a hint back in verse 8 here of Revelation chapter 19 says, it was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean. For the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. So here's the bride in verse 7. You know, it says, let us rejoice and be glad and give glory to him. For the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. The bride there is referring to the church in verse 7. You know, who are there at the marriage supper of the Lamb. And then in verse 8, he says it was given... To her, to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean. For the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. And then, so down in verse fourteen, that we were just looking at, when it says that these armies in heaven were clothed in in white linen, in fine linen, white and clean. They have to be these saints. You know, they're the bride, they're the church. We're already up there from the rapture. Be going to be coming down with them. But not only the the church, but I believe there are also the tribulation saints there. And 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 there's a thought, too, that the Old Testament saints, as well as the angels. Remember, the church is raptured, and now the church is coming back with him. If you look back in Revelation chapter 7 for a second, we'll see also that the tribulation saints will be there. Look at Revelation chapter 7. and verse 9 after these things i looked and behold a great multitude which no one could count from every nation and all tribes and people and tongues standing before the throne and before the lamb clothed in white robes and palm branches were in their hands and they cry out with a loud voice saying salvation to our god who sits on the throne and to the lamb and all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped god saying amen blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Then one of the elders answered, saying to me, These who are clothed in the white and robes, who are they? And where have they come from? And to him, my Lord, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones who came out, out of the great tribulation, and they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. For this reason they are before the throne of God, and they serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will spread his tabernacle over them. And then there's the possibility of another group. Jude 14 talks about, it was about these men that Enoch in the seventh generation from Adam prophesied saying, Behold, the Lord came with many thousands of his holy ones. Now the holy ones in this context could be Old Testament saints. Some will take it to be angels, but it could be Old Testament saints as well. And so we could have, the, we have the church here, we have the tribulation saints, and even the Old Testament saints coming with the Lord and, of course, with his angels. But regardless of whether there's two, three, or four groups, the group is ready to come with the Lord. And we know he's ready to come back here on this earth. Look at verse 15. It says, From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. This is how he will rule. This is what it's talking about here. In verse 15, he says, from his mouth comes a sharp sword. You know, this is a symbol of his slaying power. It's a, it's a sword out of his mouth because he speaks and it's done. It's just absolute. Christ is going to strike down the enemies with a word we don't see weapons in anybody else's hands christ is going to come and he's going to be that warrior king his word is going to be enough to do it from his mouth comes a sharp sword so that with it he may strike down the nations you know he's setting up his kingdom and 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 no one unsaved is going to enter this kingdom so the unbelieving nations as it says there they're going to be destroyed and then he sets up his kingdom and he will rule them, it says, with a rod of iron. What does it mean? This means it's going to be instantaneous judgment. It's going to be swift punishment that's going to happen during this millennial kingdom. It's going to be swift. It's going to be righteous judgment that's going to happen. It's going to be characteristic of that time. And it's going to be this strong rule and reign of Christ. When he comes, judgment is going to be short. You know, sometimes now we live in a time of grace, and sometimes God delays certain things. You know, we look and we say, Why doesn't God punish us? Or why doesn't He do that? Then judgment will be swift, and it's going to be sure, and it's going to be different than the world that we're in today. And we don't have time to get into all the intricacies of the millennial kingdom, but that's going to characterize a swift judgment. But in the reign of Christ, justice is going to be absolute, it's going to be sovereign, and it's going to be severe. And of course, we're going to participate in that at some point in that judging process. Revelation 2 26 to 27 says, He who overcomes and he who keeps my deeds until the end, to him I will give the authority over the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron. Someday, hopefully, here we'll do a series on eschatology and look at this in more detail. But then we see John gives more description of his rule here in the end of verse 15. And he says, and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. You know, he relates to his fury and, and to his wrath here. Now, we saw the imagery back in Isaiah 63. And if we think back to ancient times when they would, and even still now, as they would make uh, wine or grape juice, they would stomp on the grapes and, and, and the juice would squirt everywhere and, and squish and squirt all over the place. And Jesus comes in fury and in judgment and he tramples in an instant all the ungodly. And just as the, the grapes would squirt all over, that's how, that's how they would be crushed and destroyed. And so this is a terrifying, terrifying time when Christ comes back. And then on his robe, verse 16, and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. His robe here signifies his majesty and his authority. And as it says, that it covers his thigh, and this would be very visible as he's on the horse and be very visible to everyone to see that. And it says he has written on there, King of kings and Lord of lords. The title King of kings there has the idea that he's one that's over all rulers or all entities, all deities, all, all majesties. Everything. Anybody else would call themselves kings, he's over all of them. He's the king over all of them. We see that there were some people, even in in biblical times, that referred to themselves as king of kings. For example, Ezra 7.12, where Artaxerxes, he said, Artaxerxes, king of kings. To Ezra the priest, the scribe of the law of the God of heaven, perfect peace. He's talking to Ezra here. And he referred to himself as king of kings, but we'll see that only Christ qualifies as the king of kings. And he's going to be over everybody who considers themselves kings. Deuteronomy ten seventeen says, For the Lord your God is the God of gods and the Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the fearsome, and the awesome God. And so not only is he going to be king of kings over all of them, he's going to be God over all gods. Anybody that considers themselves gods or anything that considers themselves gods, he's going to be lord of lords over all of them. And so, folks, Christ is coming back again. And it's going to be bodily, and it's going to be physical, and people who are living on the earth at this time, they're going to see him, and they're going to behold him. Matthew twenty-four thirty says, And then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. They will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. What a contrast to his first coming. You know, what an image here. You know, first time he came as a baby, he came with, with humility and he came with obscurity. You know, remember when he rode into Jerusalem, um, what we call Palm Sunday, he rode in on a donkey rather than riding on a horse. He came to die at that time rather than to reign. The next time, it's going to be a different story. Let's pray. Father, I pray that we'll be convinced in our minds that you are returning bodily and physically to this earth. Lord, we know there are many who would not hold to that, would not believe. Lord, some might even say that you are not returning Lord, help us to be able to say to them without a shadow of a doubt that we believe in this fundamental of the faith that you will return. But, Lord, as Christians, Lord, if we're here, everybody here who are believers, who have been born again, who've put their faith and trust in you, we have the hope that we will not face this judgment or this wrath that we just saw in Revelation 19 where unbelievers will be destroyed. But Lord, that as we could take comfort from First Thessalonians 4 and John 14, just other passages, how you've comforted us. You told us, Lord, that you will come back for us and you're preparing a place for us and that we will not face your wrath. Lord, you're going to catch us up in the air and you tell us that the those who have died in Christ will go first. And then we will meet them in the air and we'll be changed just like that. And you said, so we'll forever be with you. So as believers, we have that hope that we will be with you and we will come back with you and we'll reign with you, Lord, after you conquer this earth. Lord, I pray for anybody here who does not know you as Lord and Savior, who have not put their trust in you. Maybe they're putting their trust in something else to get them to heaven. Maybe it's a trust in works. Maybe it's a trust in possessions. Or maybe it's just a hope that uh, goodness will outweigh bad when they come to the end of their life. I just pray for them this morning that the Holy Spirit of God would just work in their hearts. And that the Holy Spirit would just uh, convict them, Lord, of their sin. To show them and have them realize that You came the first time, Lord, to be our Savior, to be our Lord, and we have this lifetime to accept that free gift. It's not something we're giving to you. We're accepting your free gift. We're not giving our our heart, as we would say, but we're accepting your free gift of salvation. And, Lord, we're going to live our lives the way you want us to live them, Lord, holy and acceptable and righteous. Maybe you're here this morning, you've never done that. You've never placed your trust in Christ. Would you do that this morning? Christ had said that he is coming again. And as we said in the onset, we don't want to be on that side of God's wrath. Because then it will be too late. Would you place your trust in Christ this morning? Father, we pray for anyone who hasn't done that that you would just constantly work in their hearts, help them to realize, not necessarily out of fear, but, Lord, if it takes fear, well, that you would do that. But, Lord, they would just do that out of conviction from the Holy Spirit that we deserve, a, we, we, we are thankful for our Savior, and that we want to live our lives for him and give our all to him. So we thank you for the hope that salvation brings, and that we could rest assured in that. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen.
0: That's part five of uh, our series on the fundamentals of the faith. We thank uh, Pastor Conway Campbell uh, for sharing with us. So we hope that you've been blessed. Up next will be a complete uh, series on bibliology. That will be a great study of the Bible, the origins of the Bible. And uh, I think you're really going to be blessed in it. It's uh, going deep stuff. So until next time, this is your host and Bible teacher, Keith McKenzie. May God richly bless you.